all of you have by now become experts on what happened in Boston yesterday. If you've been watching the television, I'm sorry? Well, at the break, rifle will clue you in. Um, but I heard about it last night on the radio when I was on my way home. And then I was, I was glued to the television until about midnight last night, until all the stories began to repeat themselves. But, you know, I, when I was uh, at the Pentagon, one of the, uh, one of the projects that, that I was involved in was uh, developing the policy strategy portion of the U.S. response to asymmetrical warfare. And asymmetrical warfare is, um, is warfare in which you cannot clearly draw the line that separates the good guys from the bad guys. And so ever since 9-11, the United States has been involved in asymmetrical warfare, mostly uh, in other parts of the world. Now, I haven't come to any conclusions yet about whether this was domestic or foreign terrorism, but given the nature of the circumstances and the fact that this was Patriot Day in Boston, leads me to believe that whoever is the perpetrator of this, this crime is not a friend of our country. And so I almost immediately began to, to think about the nation of Israel. Since Israel declared independence in 1948, there have been some 3,000 acts of terrorism committed against the state of Israel in Israel. And I'm not talking about the indiscriminate launching of rockets into Israel. Katusha rockets are the most favored weapon on the, by Hamas um, and Hezbollah, Hezbollah launching them from the Golan Heights or just north of the Golan Heights and Hamas launching them from Gaza. It's, it's a weapon that you can't aim. It just has a range. And so you just fire them indiscriminately, and whatever happens on the ground happens. So those 3,000, over 3,000 acts of terrorism that have been committed since 1948 in the state of Israel do not include these indiscriminate launchings of rockets into Israel. And so if you, if you take the number of days since May of 1948, and by the way, Israel is about to celebrate their 65th birthday next month. If you take the number of days since May of 1948, and you divide that into 3,000, it averages a terrorist attack about every 45 days, something like that. 
Now, can you imagine where we would be as a nation if the event that just occurred in Boston yesterday happened in this country every 45 days? I mean, we, we were devastated by 9-11, all of us. And church attendance spiked dramatically after 9-11. And I suppose there'll be a little blip in the chart of church attendance as a consequence of what just happened in Boston. That's the nature of who we are as a nation. But just imagine living your life out in public every day with the thought that on average, every 45 days, a bus will be exploded, a restaurant will be attacked, a school will be attacked, a synagogue, a mosque, a church will be attacked. I mean, what would life be like? I mean, how comfortable would you be with your children playing on the street or riding a school bus? There have been over 600 children killed on school buses in Israel since 1948. 600. So, I I guess the question is... uh, are we as a nation about to enter into an era in which we share this fear in common with Israel? I mean, think about that. You know, I'm not trying to um, I'm not trying to paint a picture of gloom and doom, um, but only time will tell. But I, I ask you to consider that circumstance in light of what we're talking about here in this class. What is God's will for Israel? You could ask the same question about the United States. What is God's will for the United States? And and I think that we also ought to begin to examine, if you have not already, is there a difference between God's will for a nation and his will for an individual believer? Think about that. I'm not sure that I, I have the answer to that question. Um, but in Genesis chapter 32, where, where God wrestled with Joshua, it was Joshua, wasn't it? It was Jacob. <laughs> where, where God, that was a joke for Bob. <laughs> Who knows the correct answer and has corrected me several times. God's and and Jacob struggled. And at the end of the struggle, God says to Jacob, what is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. And he says, I'm changing your name to Israel. Because you have struggled against man, you have struggled against God, and you have prevailed. And that's where we left off last week. And I promise you that that's where we would start up. In all the research that I have done over the last year, I have come to a conclusion that may or may not be accurate, but I'll just share it with you and you can come to your own conclusions about how accurate it is. I believe, when I search my heart for for what God's will for Israel is, and I look at the demographics and I, I look at the nation of Israel and I look at the history of the Jewish people, 
since the Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. I have come to conclude uh, intuitively, not necessarily empirically, that most Jews do not believe that they have prevailed in their struggle either with man or with God. You know, the Jewish people, and this is one of the great ironies of history, the Jewish people have been highly criticized because of the way they responded to Nazi oppression, which led to the Holocaust. They have been criticized for the way they have responded. Why didn't they, why didn't they rise up and... and um, and do something. Why did they just blindly get on trains and stand in lines? You know, if they had stood up and overwhelmed their captors, most of whom they outnumbered by 2,000 to 1, would there have been a difference? The irony in this is amazing to me, that the Western world criticizes them for not being brave and heroic, which begs the question, where was their trust? You know, if, if you view yourself as God's chosen people, where, where is your trust? And I'm not suggesting that, I'm not suggesting anything, actually. But, but in my study, I, I have a lot of questions about God's will for Israel. A lot of questions. I mean, Scripture is very clear. But my my question, my questioning is based on the question that I posed earlier. Is there a difference between God's will for a nation and God's will for an individual believer? So I, I just lay that on the table for you to think about. Mac? Mac, I've got 2,000 years of Jewish history to cover in an hour and a half. I can't go down the rabbit trail of the Civil War and the war in Vietnam. We would... God has been very clear in the Old Testament about, one, his relationship with the Israelites, um, his promises to the Israelites. I don't think that, um, I'm not sure that that necessarily transfers automatically to God's will for our country. Again, the question, is there a difference and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. 
But I'd like for us to pray right now um, before we get started in earnest. This is just a lengthy introduction. I'd like for us to pray, first of all, for the people who have been affected by what happened in Boston yesterday. Because the ripple effect of this uh, has yet to be determined. <clears throat> and as the days stretch into weeks and into months, um, we, we will only begin to, to come to a place of understanding of how significant this was for our country and for those who are directly affected by what happened. So let's just lift them up in prayer. Father, we just give thanks that you are a good God. We proclaim your goodness, your love, your compassion, your concern for us to be the single characteristic of our relationship with you. There will be those, Father, who will blame you for this because of because of moral decay or or ethical decline in our country, but we know that that is not true, God. We know that you are good and you are good always. So we just lift the victims and their families and their friends up to you, Father, that you would bring peace on their hearts, that you would bring peace into their house. And we would just pray that your healing love will bathe over them and that their trust in you will not have been moved by this. We just pray your hand on the hands of the surgeons and medical technicians who, are at, who as we are here tonight, are, are attending to those who continue to require medical attention. We just pray your presence in those operating rooms and the emergency rooms and the intensive care units, God. We pray your presence be felt by all who who continue to be involved in the healing process, not just physical healing, but spiritual and emotional healing. And we just lift them up to you, Father, and ask that you bless them. Bless them indeed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you remember the event of September the 5th, 1972 in Munich, Germany. There probably weren't many of you were old enough to remember that. But I, I rem, I'm sorry? September the 5th, 1972. You know, the, <laughs> the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization broke into the housing compound of the Olympics the Olympic Games in Munich and took capture, took captive um, about 15 Israeli athletes and a couple of coaches. And um, 
their intent was to hold them hostage in exchange for Palestinians who were in prisons in Israel who had been arrested as a consequence of the Israeli government's suspicion that they were involved in terrorist attacks. And I, I know that I was, I was sitting in front of the television watching this live when that helicopter exploded and 11 athletes and one coach were killed. Was, you know, there was an explosion. There was an exchange of gunfire. Um, the Palestinians were killed, but also 11, 12 Israeli citizens. And, you know, the reaction of the Western world was one of shock. And how does something like this happen in the modern era, in the midst of all this security surrounding the Olympic Games? But for many people, it was just one more example of the, of the things that occur in Israel almost daily. I mean, they, they live with this. It has become a part of their existence. Several years before that, an organization by the name of uh, Mossad, which is the Israeli Internal Intelligence Agency, it's a very, very secretive organization, they, they call themselves an intelligence-gathering organization, but they do much more than that. Uh, they go into the world and they, and they assassinate enemies of Israel. They were responsible for the capture of Adolf Eichmann. Um, they were also responsible for the raid on Entebbe. Any of you remember the raid on Entebbe? It's an airport in Uganda where... Um, an airplane had landed. There were about 40 or 50 Israeli citizens and Mossad and a, um, in the company of a very specialized, highly trained Egyptian, I'm sorry, Israeli special forces unit swooped into Antibi, captured the Palestinians who were holding these Israeli citizens captive, um, there was a terrible gunfight, and about 15 of the hostages were killed, and only one person in the raid was killed, and that was the commander of the Israeli Special Forces Unit, who was an Israeli colonel. But Mossad is an organization that is alive and well in Israel today. I don't know if you remember from your Civil War history what was going on in Maryland in the early days of the Civil War. Um, Maryland was on the brink of seceding from the Union, and Abraham Lincoln could not afford for his capital to be surrounded on all four sides by the enemy. So he ordered Union forces to go into Maryland and capture all of the secessionists and put them in prison. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. The writ of habeas corpus is a law that prevents you from imprisoning people without bringing a charge against them and then holding them accountable, indicting them, trying them. But he suspended the writ of habeas corpus for the entirety of the war until he was assassinated so that these secessionists would not be fomenting rebellion in Maryland that would lead from lead the state of Maryland from seceding from the Union. Well, that same atmosphere uh, is going on in Israel today. 
You may have, you may recall reading or hearing about on the news just several weeks ago where there were riots in the, in the West Bank because a Palestinian prisoner had hung himself. And, there, and you always read about Palestinians in Israeli prisons going on hunger strike. There are these small um, prisons all over Israel packed with Palestinians who have never been charged. They have been in prison for years and years and years. Um, you can only believe that some percentage of them are innocent. But Mossad does not care. And the Israeli government um, pays no attention. Mossad just goes out. They do their thing. They capture people, bring them, put them in jail. And that's the way Israel is dealing with terrorism in the state of Israel today. Israelis um, are willing to sacrifice personal liberties. They know they have to sacrifice personal liberties in in order to be safe. So my question for all of us, given what happened yesterday, how much of our personal liberty are we willing to sacrifice in order to be safe? There are a lot of people who believe that what we go through when we try to get on an airplane today is is sacrificing our personal liberties. I personally uh, am, am glad that there are people who are willing to do that. It does not bother me. Um, but I, I view those things a little differently than, than most people do. But the question remains, to what extent are we willing to sacrifice personal liberty? Now, I, I ask that question because it, it, it has as much bearing on the history of the Jewish people as it does what's going on in Israel today. Last week when when we started this class, I said, you know, there are three ways to find God's will for, for Israel. In Scripture, in the study of the history of the Jewish people, and in our hearts. Um, I believe that the path that we take in the Word ends up on our hearts. I also believe that, that if you choose to engage yourself in a study of the history of the Jewish people, that path also will end up on your heart. I have a, a, a quiz. Surprise, surprise. This is not a written quiz. But I'm going to ask you this question and then I'll answer it in a few minutes, but I'd just like you to give some serious thought to this. How many of you have feel like you have a good, solid background in modern European history? Nobody. Okay. Well, I know Edward will get this question right. So here's the question. What 17th and 18th century statesman ruler, and conqueror laid the groundwork, which was eventually the birth of Zionism in Western Europe. No. Just just think about that. Um, So now I'm going to digress a little bit. How many of you have read in detail Stephen's 
testimony before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, which immediately preceded his stoning. Who, who knows it well enough to be able to characterize it in just a few phrases, a few words? Anybody? No. Well, yes, he did. He did, yes. Absolutely, he did. I'm sorry? Yeah, it's the history of the Jewish people. He lectured the Sanhedrin on the history of the Jewish people. And then he was released and stoned. Yes, he was. How many of you recall from your reading in the book of Acts Paul's testimony to defend himself against Jewish persecution? Um, somebody help here. What chapter was that? Acts 23. Now, these two events took place about four years difference in time, somewhere around 40 B.C., I'm sorry, 40 A.D. These are the last two recorded meetings of the Sanhedrin. Everybody know what the Sanhedrin is? It is the ruling Jewish body in Israel. It's made up of 71 priests, one of which is the high priest, who in this particular case was who? Caiaphas. The same high priest that that uh, Jesus went before. So there's 71 priests. Half of them are from one party. The other half is from another party. Does anyone know who those two parties are? All right. Half are Pharisees. The other half are Sadducees. So this is about 40 A.D. Now fast forward in time. The year is um, 19, I'm sorry, the year is 1807. The country is France. The (laughs) The city is Paris. The venue is the Hotel de Ville de Paris. For the first time since 40 A.D., the Sanhedrin meets once again. Seventy-one Jewish priests, half are Sadducees, half are Pharisees. Now, they didn't call themselves Sadducees or Pharisees at the time, but what divided them was one issue, the same issue that divided them in the day of Jesus and Paul and Stephen. And what was that issue? That's right. That's right. Paul was being persecuted by Jews for preaching the hope of the resurrection. And he was defending himself before the Sanhedrin because he, on the basis that he was a, a Roman citizen and therefore was not under the law, was not under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. So, how is it then in 1807 that the Sanhedrin once again meets. Rifle? That's right. That's the answer to the question. Napoleon Bonaparte, 
who was the emperor of France. That's right. 1807. 1807. He was, a, I'm sorry, 18th, 19th century, right? Okay, if, if you got it wrong, it's my fault. Thank you. So here's the here's the issue at the time. And leading up to this, Jews were denied citizenship. Um, they were almost every 500 years being kicked out of some country. But the interesting thing about it is, in most of the countries that Jews settled in, as a consequence of diaspora allowed them to establish businesses, and they, they distinguished themselves as remarkable entrepreneurs. So Napoleon was, was facing a financial crisis in France, and he went before Parliament and he said, how can we not afford to take advantage of the financial gifts that Jews bring to France. So he offered them citizenship. And there were about 20,000 Jews living in France at the time, and they, they were given citizenship. And Napoleon, as a gesture of that, invited the Sanhedrin to, to, to convene. And his government allowed them to do that. Now, it's interesting that... Um, in 17, I think it was 1790, something like that, Napoleon launches this great crusade to drive the British out of the Middle East. And he starts in Egypt. And he ends up in Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, um, he recognizes that he recognizes the history of Jerusalem. He recognizes the history of Palestine, if you will. So he makes this this pronouncement, and I'm going to read it to you because it's an amazing statement. He issues this proclamation to all the Jews living in Palestine and in Jerusalem, and he says, Israelites, rise up. You exiled, arise. Hasten. Now is the time, which may not return for thousands of years, to claim restoration of civic rights among the population of the universe which has shamefully been withheld from you for thousands of years, to claim your political existence as a nation among nations and the unlimited natural right to worship Jehovah according to your faith publicly and most probably forever. So, it's not known, at least it's not recorded in history, the extent to which that proclamation influenced Jews or encouraged or empowered Jews in Palestine. But as a consequence of what he did in 1807, granting citizenship to Jews throughout France and encouraging them to reestablish the mechanisms, if you will, the traditions for the worship of Jehovah by creating this environment in which the Sanhedrin could once again meet, it was very encouraging for Jews in Europe. Two weeks after Napoleon made this declaration, um, he was driven out of Israel 
driven back across the Sinai, what is now known as the Sinai, back into Egypt, and eventually had to <clears throat> flee the Middle East because the British were were um, winning significantly. So, but I think it's for me it's very fascinating to note that Napoleon was alone in this in all of Europe, Eastern and Western Europe. He was alone. There was no other king or prince, a monarch or president or prime minister who was encouraging Jews to reestablish themselves as a community of believers with the hope that someday they may be able to return to Israel to establish a Jewish state. The unfortunate thing about it is that um, Napoleon's social experiment failed miserably and uh, was unable to to turn the tide of dramatic growth in anti-Semitism in Western Europe. I sent out this email message several weeks ago um, in which I, I borrowed a quote from from the uh, 1962 hit Broadway musical, Fiddler on the Roof. Any of you remember receiving that? Any of you ever see the movie, Fiddler on the Roof? It's a great movie. But what is embedded in that otherwise um, jovial movie is the plight of the Jew in Russia at the turn of the century. Tevye was a milkman, had five daughters, was trying to raise his daughter in Jew, his daughters in Jewish tradition. Um, the czar, in the meantime, was taking his land away from him, burning the Torah, um, outlawing circumcision, um, preventing Jews from building synagogues, burning them to the ground. Now, all of this was going on in the background in this movie. The interesting thing is it was going on in the background of the world court of public opinion. The Western world just ignored what was going on in Eastern and Western Europe. And, they, and I suppose there's a reason for that. But the quote is, I think, remarkable. In, in the midst of his frust- frustration, Tevye looks to the heavens and he said, God, I know we are your chosen people. But why didn't you choose someone else? Um, I mean, there were some snickers in this audience. There was great laughter when this play hit Broadway for the first time. Everybody thought that was really funny. And it is to a certain extent, if you don't know what's going on in the background. I know we are your chosen people, but why did you choose us? That's good. That's good. You know, last week we read from Romans chapter 9. And if you have your Bibles, let's go there again because I think it's important that we establish the mood. Romans chapter 9.
You know, I know that when I started preparing this class that the risk was that there would be a large number of you that are bored to tears with history, particularly Eastern and Western European history. I know that when I was a student in high school and college, I was bored to tears with history. But, but I, not, I don't blame that on my lack of hunger for history. I blame it on the people who are responsible for teaching me history. It was so incredibly boring, so incredibly boring. Remember this date and attach it to this event, and that's what you'll be tested on. There was no in-depth of analysis that brought this, these great stories to life. And, and I, I really believe that the history of the Jewish people is probably one of the most remarkable histories in human history in the world. And yet, it has been hidden so incredibly well from textbooks, from schools, universities, colleges, high schools. So, so what I, I'd like to do is to introduce you to some of the things that have gone on in the history of the Jewish people. So through that, um, there will be a, a message that resonates on your heart. So when you ask yourself the question, what is God's will for the, for the nation of Israel, for his chosen people, you'll have some basis in fact on the conclusions you reach as a consequence of the things that have happened to Jews since the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> but I want to read first, just to put this in proper perspective, the, the cry of Paul's heart for Israel. And I'm going to start with the first verse and read through the fourth verse. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continuous grief in my heart. I have great sorrow and continuous grief in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And this is the important part of this verse. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? And the promises. Um, I, I would invite you all, before we meet next Tuesday night, to read in its, an, its an entirety um, the book of Isaiah and pick out all of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. Um, a couple of years ago, Barbara and I uh, did this a lot. But we did it from a, a personal perspective. It, it was our belief at the time that God's message to the children of Israel was a, a message he was sending to us that the promises God made for the nation of Israel were also promises that he makes for us. And I, I haven't been moved from that. But in the context of what we're studying tonight, it's important for us to know the promises that God made to the nation of Israel because Paul says, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, 
to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So next week, we're going to study the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. And they're throughout the entire Old Testament, but they are most um, prominent in the book of Isaiah. So, in 1554, Pope Pius IV issued a papal bull. Does everyone know what a papal bull is? That's when the Pope gets up and he says, this is truth. And it spread throughout the entire world. This is truth. It's called a papal bull. Yeah, no bull. (laughs) So this is the Pope of the Catholic Church, the Pope of the world, the preeminent intercessor between man and Christ. And he issues this truth. And he says, God has condemned Jews to perpetual slavery because of their guilt. 1554. Pope, Pope, did I say Pope Pius? I'm sorry, Pope Paul IV. God has condemned Jews to eternal slavery because of their guilt. How many of you have ever heard of the term Jewish deicide? Um, In the year uh, 3000 A.D., Pope Constantine, actually Emperor Constantine, established Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, that's remarkable. What did I say? No, that's not right. (laughs) It's just a fact. I mean, (laughs) I am so glad you're here, Mac, because you're... You know, I see. I say something like that, and I see all these eyes rolling. And I'm thinking, thanks for setting me straight. 300 A.D., Constantine declared Christianity as the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, that's remarkable. 300 years for Christianity to have been established in such a, a profound way that the emperor of the Roman Empire declares Christianity. I mean, given the history of the relationship between Rome and the Jew, uh, not ignoring Circus Maximus. Have any of you ever been to Rome and, and visited Circus Maximus? It's still there. It's this big arena. Um, a lot of people think that Jews, most of the Jews that were killed in Rome were killed in the Colosseum. Uh, but that's not true. That's mostly where the gladiators were engaged in, in combat. But Circus Maximus, which is just a few blocks down from the Colosseum, is where the Jews were fed to the lions. Um, they were burned at the stakes. They were crucified. They were quartered, all for public amusement. Thousands of them. Jews and Christians. And so now, Christianity 
in 300 A.D. as establishes the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. But that's not the only thing um, that happened. Constantine also um, put a price on the head of all Jews. And he, he also outlawed circumcision, which for a Jew is denying the existence of Judaism. It goes back to God's covenant with Abraham. It's, it's almost like what Netanyahu said several months ago, that Israel without Palestine, I mean, without uh, Jerusalem is not Israel. Jews who cannot celebrate the covenant with Abraham through the tradition of circumcision, it, it essentially denies the existence of Judaism. And that was his intent, to deny the existence of Judaism. So in the same year that he declares Christianity the, the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire, he also bans Judaism in the entire Holy Roman Empire. Here's another uh, great papal bull. 1593, Pope Clement VIII. All the world suffers from the usury of Jews, their monopolies and deceit. Then now as Jews to be reminded intermittently that they have been enjoying rights throughout the world, since they left Palestine, and subsequently their ethical and moral doctrines, as well as their deeds, rightly deserve to be exposed to criticism in whatever country they happen to live. This is the Pope in 1593. He essentially says, do with the Jew as you choose, because they are to be held accountable for their moral decay, for their usury. They were money changers, and they were held in great contempt throughout Europe for that. Pope Pius IX in 1871 says this of Jews living in Rome. He says, of these Jewish dogs, now this is the Pope, of the Catholic Church. He says, of these Jewish dogs, there are far too many of them howling in our streets at night. They are disturbing us in all the places around the world. What shall we do with them? Eleven years later, in Dresden, Germany, now this is, this is good. This is, this is not historical trivia. This is an event that took place in the modern era which set the tone for the, the, the unspeakable um, crimes committed against Jews in Europe. The first international anti-Jewish Congress convened in Dresden, Germany in 1882 and they published a 10-page manifesto. And I, I only published, I only reproduced two pages of it. So I just want to read this to you briefly. 
This is the first international anti-Jewish Congress. September the 11th and 12th, 1882. So here's their manifesto. To the governments and people of Christian nations all over the world threatened by Judaism. In the in the course of the past centuries, the culture, civilization, prosperity, and future of European Christians' people were threatened in turn by Arabs, Tartars, and Turks, people of a foreign race and religion whose attacks and onslaught were successfully fought back by the weapons of European Christians at the time. Likewise, in our time, another foreign race threatens the culture, civilization, prosperity, and future of Christians all over the world, a foreign race that is no less dangerous. Nay, in terms of its means and objectives, it is probably even more dangerous than those aggressive national elements. This foreign race is the Jewish race. The proper instinct of the European Christian and Christians all over the world has kept this natural, sworn arch enemy in check until very recently. It is an arch enemy against whom restrictive legislative reg regulations have only proven to be half measures and inadequate weapons for protecting Christian people. Since the beginning of the current century, however, this, change, this situation has changed quite radically and on a step-by-step -step basis in some European countries. The victorious ideals of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity, have torn down the barriers against the Jewish race and have been erected for the protection of the Christian peoples. Now, that was a slam against whom? Napoleon. Because he extended the rights won by French citizens in the French Revolution to Jews. Liberty, equality, and fraternity. So let me repeat that. The victorious ideals of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity, have torn down the barriers against the Jewish race that have been erected for the protection of the Christian people. The principle of liberty, liberty was also applied to a race whose first and foremost thoughts and energies are everywhere aimed at putting other nations in the moral and material shackles of slaves by any kind of cunning behavior. <clears throat> According to the Jews' religion and national tra traditions, all of these people were created merely to serve them. What this is saying is that the Jews' view of Europe is that all Europeans, Christians, whatever, were created to be slaves to the Jewish people. The principle of equality was also applied to a race that does not wish to be equal with us, that considers itself people privileged by God and regards the rest of mankind as lower beings and impure animals. The principles of fraternity were also applied to a race that does not even acknowledge non-Jews as neighbors and fellow human beings, and according to those to whose Talmud, non-Jews are enemies destined for eradication. 
Moreover, cheating, stealing from them, bleeding them dry, bringing ruin upon them, perjuring against them, dishonoring, and even killing them constitute an activity by the Jews that they find pleasing to God. Small wonder, therefore, if modern liberalism, identifying more and more with the ascendant Jew, has taken the shape of pseudo-liberalism. In the Jews' hand, it has turned into a convenient tool for realizing their plans for world domination, putting irons on the European people. Now, that's just the introduction to this manifesto. It goes on for page after page, which outlines the the practical um, legislative attempts to reverse this trend in Europe. So, I mean, this is 1882. I mean, this is the modern era. I mean, none of us were born then, except maybe Bob. And me. This is the modern era. This, this. It's interesting if you really dig deep in the details of this Congress. Um, it's amazing how many countries who sent representatives to this con- con- Congress deny having done so. Oh, we didn't know anything about that. It was held in Dresden, Germany, and it was mostly. The official delegates were from Eastern and Western European nations, but there's also some evidence that the United States had representatives there. There's a a famous German philosopher, historian, and author who wrote a book entitled On the Jewish Question. And this is important because almost everything that he wrote in this book was included in the Communist Manifesto, which was published some years later, which served as the, as the philosophical and ideological basis for communism, world communism. But here's what he says in his book that really fascinated Karl Marx. What is the worldly, excuse me, what is the worldly cut cult, I'm sorry, what is the worldly cult of the Jew? And he answers the question, huckstering. Are any of you familiar with the term huckstering? It's it's cheating. It's... um, It's making money through deceit. It's like Bob selling Ford trucks, and he puts a sticker on the side of the truck that says, for this price you get all of these accessories, most of which you can't see because they're designed into the infrastructure of this truck. And then you get in the truck after having paid Bob $60,000 for this truck. You drive it off. You drive it off the lot and it falls apart and you come back and you say, I want my money back. Bob's response is, 
buyer beware. Now, that's a huckster. So, Karl Marx embraced in the Communist Manifesto that Jews were hucksters. Um, I don't know. But that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. So here's what else he says. What is the worldly God of the Jew? And he answers the question, money. Money is the worldly God of the Jew. Money is the jealous God of Israel. Besides which, no other God may exist. The God of the Jews has been secularized and become, has become the God of this world. So this moral decay that is spreading through the world at this time is as a consequence of Jewish huckstering. That's the fundamental philosophical tenet and ideology that Karl Marx embraced when he wrote the Communist Manifesto. In the final analysis, the emancipation of the Jew is the emancipation of mankind from Judaism. Now, what do you think he meant by that? The emancipation of the Jew is the emancipation of mankind from Judaism. I'm sorry? Well, what, what do we know from Scripture is the emancipation of the Jew? What do we know is our own personal emancipation from slavery? Jesus Christ. So without Jesus Christ in their lives, because Jews are so obsessed on the God of money and are not concerned about God's will for Israel, the rest of the world has been corrupted. And for the world to be saved, Jews need to be brought to Christ. That's the underlying statement here, although it does not appear, per se, in the Communist Manifesto. The philosopher, this, um, this German scholar, philosopher, historian, wrote this based on his belief of, of the moral decay that Judaism was bringing into the world. Um, one, one of the amazing things about the, the history of the Jewish people in Eastern Europe from about um, 1500 all the way up to the Holocaust is that most of, them, most of them were killed and many committed suicide because they refused to be converted to Christianity. They absolutely refused to do it. Most of the policies established by the ruling governments throughout Europe toward the Jews was we either encourage them to become Christians or we will exile them from our land. And if they refuse to be exiled, then we will kill them. And this was taking place as early as 1700. 250 years, a little less than 250 years from the Holocaust. So, you know, the world issues a tremendous amount of condemnation on Adolf Hitler, all of which he deserves. But I think you can begin to see how the, the ideological framework has already been put in place by the Pope, by 
uh, political theorists like Karl Marx. Hitler really thought when he came up with the final solution that he was doing the world a favor. He really did. So, let me just share with you just a few of the highlights of the history of the Jewish people. And there's a great website. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but if you go to Google and you just type in the history of atrocities committed against Jews, there's about a 60-page website. It just goes on and on and on and on, listing all the atrocities committed against Jews. In, um, in, 50, in the 538, throughout the entire Roman Empire, Jews were prohibited from appearing in public on Easter. And this, this goes back to the guilt that they are to bear for the death of Christ. Now, I don't know where each of you individually stand on that issue. Um, I mean, we could have a great discussion of who killed Jesus. But the Catholic world blamed the Jew. Uh, Stephen, in his, in his speech before the Sanhedrin, says... You didn't know him, and you killed him. Now, he was talking to the, to the Sanhedrin. But from that, from that scripture, the Catholic world chose to blame the death of Jesus Christ on the Jew. And so everything pre- pertaining to Christianity um, started in the Roman Empire, spread throughout the world, with the exception of the Far East. China is one of the few countries in the world that didn't persecute Jews because they what? <laughs> Principally because there weren't any Jews in China at the time. <laughs> but everything pertaining to Judaism, to Christianity, was used against Jews. The example of not being able to appear in public um, on Easter. Um, most governments banned the practice of circumcision. Jews were required um, from about um, about 1500 through Kristallnacht. Uh, Everyone remember Kristallnacht? Um, it was. <laughs> this was um, this was a night in. A Germany in which about 3,000 Jewish businesses and synagogues and homes were destroyed. And the term Kristallnacht means the night of the broken glass because of all the glasses on shop fronts and homes that were, were broken that night. But, you know, I, I used to think that the wearing of the, of the yellow star was a phenomenon associated with the Holocaust. But in 1500, 
um, a pope whose name I can't remember. Um, it's in my notes, but I'm not going to look for it. Ordered that all Jews wear yellow stars on their clothes to identify them from Christians. And if you were a Jew and you were found in public without your yellow star on, um, you were burned at a stake, quartered, whatever. There was a, a Jewish town in eastern Russia that had gathered about 3,000 Jews and gave them the opportunity, and this is about 1850, gave them the opportunity to convert to Christianity. Half of them committed suicide rather than submit. The other half were thrown into an ice hole in, a, in this river that, wrote, that ran through this town. So there were 3,000 Jews who were gathered up, given the opportunity to con convert to Christianity. Half of them committed suicide. The other half were murdered by, by pushing them down this ice hole in the middle of a river. Rich? Which, which in essence is the history of the Jewish people. I mean, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead, where are you so, going? To me, that, that's not really the history of the Jews themselves, what they believe, what they thought. It's more the history of what other people thought of them Well, I, yeah, well, I do too. I join you in that. I mean, <clears throat> I, philosophically, I find it hard to, to distinguish between jihad and the Crusades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, traditionally, jihad with the, you know, there are two jihads. One is the capital J, the other is the lowercase j. The lowercase j says that, that Muslims have a responsibility to convert infidels to Islam. And they do it first in the community by, by uh, evangelism, so to speak, evangelizing Muhammad and his works in the Quran. So, you know, I sit down and disciple you in, in Islam. That's the first step in the informal jihad. The, the second step is that if you can't, if you can't win them over to, to Islam in the community, then you do so in the church. So you invite them into the, into the mosque where you attempt to, con, to convert them to Islam. If that doesn't work, then you do it through the government. And typically what happens is if the government fails in jihad, jihad escalates to jihad with the capital J, which is a holy war. There is in my mind no difference between jihad and what the Catholic Church perpetrated against Jews because they were the enemy, they are the arch enemy of Christianity. They are the people, the chosen people who, of God, 
who murdered Jesus. And that was essentially the official stance of the Catholic Church. Now, you know, you bring up a very good point, and, and I suppose that um, I could um, be accused of sort of taking a one-sided view of the history of the Jewish people, but there is not a lot recorded in history anywhere that does not have a negative bias toward the Jew which would reflect the positive contributions that they have made to cultures and societies and governments over the last 2,000 years. You just won't find them. Mac? No, it doesn't. Mac? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. In 1861, Ulysses S. Grant expelled every Jew from the Union Army. This country. 1861. Ulysses S. Grant, who was at the time the commander-in-chief of the Army of the Potomac, kicked every Jew out of the Union Army because he viewed them to be conspirators on the payroll of the Confederacy. That's why there are, there are so many Jews who chose to serve on the side of the Confederacy because they saw their best opportunity for equality in this country if the South won the war. I'm sorry, I can't stay quiet. That takes a special kind of deception. <laughs> think that way. Well, I mean, think about it, Edward. The, de- the, the basis for this deception was laid when the two Roman soldiers were paid to be quiet about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that last verse in Matthew says, and this story continues to be told to this day. Everybody remember reading that in Scripture? So, you know, the deception began then. And, you know, the Jewish people have been the victims of this deception since then. I mean, I could go on and on and on listing event after event after event that demonstrates the hostility toward Jews throughout Europe, Eastern and Western Europe, actually throughout the Middle East. The same thing that was going on between Catholics and Jews in Europe was going on between Muslims and Jews in the Middle East. Muslims were, I mean, Muslims forced Jews to convert to Islam, and when they refused, they were killed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews in the Middle East were killed as a consequence of their refusal 
to convert to Islam. You don't read a lot about that in history. How many of you have heard of St. Thomas Aquinas? He's a very very famous Roman Catholic Church whose works today are still considered to be central to the Catholic Church's revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1260, St. Thomas Aquinas publishes an edict labeling Jews who refuse to convert to Christianity as deliberately defiant and invincibly ignorant. That sort of sums up the attitude that most of the Western world had toward Jews all the way through the end of the Second World War. You know, most of us think that this is an Eastern European phenomenon, but there were 5,000 Jews massacred in the city of London in 1300. How many of you read about that? If you go to this website, and I, in the in the uh, in an attempt to be fair about this, there are many people who have accused this website as being slanted in favor of the Jews. But but if you read um, the documentation, the sources that were used to come up with this historiography of the persecution of Jews in Europe, it's pretty compelling, much more compelling than, than those stories who would suggest, or those facts in history that would suggest otherwise. Yes, ma'am. Well, if you if you go if you go if you Google um, the first international anti-Jewish congress, you can read the entire page, ten-page manifesto. It outlines in incredible clarity the paranoia that the world had toward Jews. Yeah. Well, I mean, just in the first par- first two paragraphs of the manifesto, it was. It was a prevalent thought in Europe that Jews existed to enslave all of Europe. Well, no, they didn't. I'm sorry? right. I mean, and you have to, I mean, that's an interesting question to ask. Why? I mean, one could say from a secular perspective, they are very resilient. But we, but we know that they are God's chosen people. In one of the, in one of God's promises to Israel, he says, 
I will contend against those who contend against you. Now, from, you know, from the evidence of history over 2,000 years, one could say that God has not been faithful to that promise. But the story is not over. It is not over. Um, I mean, Jews are very prolific. I mean, if you look at their history, uh, they're probably more prolific than Catholics. And, and they had to be. <laughs> to survive, they had to be. I mean, one could, I mean, you know, I'm always fascinated by these what-if questions about history. You know, the, the most famous one is, you know, what if, what if Stonewall Jackson had not been killed at the Battle of Chancellorville? You know, um, Lee would have had him there leading a division against the Union Army at the Battle of Gettysburg, and the Union Army would have fallen in defeat. The theory being that Robert E. Lee had, had fallen into this great funk. I mean, he lost his spiritual get-up-and-go when Stonewall Jackson was killed by one of his own men, mistakenly. So, you know, that's one of those great what-ifs. I mean, what if the, the South had won the Civil War? So the question I, I would pose is, what if the world's view of Catholicism had been the same as it was toward Judaism? I mean, think about that. Where would the world be today? Would the Catholic Church have stood up over 2,000 years to this type of persecution? Now, Catholics have been persecuted. I mean, that's, that's clear. I mean, there have been wars between Christians and Catholics. There are wars going on today in Northern Ireland between Catholics and the Christians, and will continue. But I, I, would, I, I find it fascinating just to think about, you know, what would the world be like today if the world had turned against the Catholic Church? You know, what if the Jews had been successful in 70 A.D.? in their uprising against Rome. What would, what would have happened? What would the world look like today if the Jews had been successful in, in beating and driving the Romans out of Palestine? Okay, you can do it at the break. I've got another thousand years to cover here in eight minutes. Hang in there. Um, 1762. The colony of Rhode Island, just right up the road here, prohibited Jews from settling in Rhode Island. 1762. I've already mentioned in 1862, U U Ulysses S. Grant prohibited Jews or kicked the Jews out of the out of the Union Army. How many of you know who Henry Ford is? 
probably know who Henry Ford is, don't you? <laughs> a great American. A great American. Please don't take offense at this, Bob. In 1920, Henry Ford paid about $3 million to have 500 copies of a small brochure entitled The Protocol of the Elders of Zion and paid countless newspapers all over the country to run selected um, paragraphs from this this uh, document. And this, this document um, suggested that the Bolshevik Revolution was a Jewish plot to overthrow Europe. And that if allowed to establish themselves in the United States, there would be a revolution similar to the Bolshevik, Bolshevik, Revol- Bolshevik Revolution in the United States. Consider it a world conspiracy to dominate Europe. Now, you know, if you go back and you study the genesis of the Bolshevik Revolution, it's difficult to understand how Jews, particularly as they were being oppressed in Russia at the time, could have been responsible for the Bolshevik Revolution. But nonetheless, Henry Ford bought into this. In 1924, the U.S. Congress passed an immigration act which halted all Jewish immigration from Russia and Eastern Europe. Now, given our, our, European, our integration policy, immigration policies in the United States today, um, um, I've, I find this remarkable, particularly when you, when you consider what was going on in Russia and Eastern Europe at the time. I mean, Jews were being exiled, they were being murdered, uh, they were being forced to convert. And the United States refused to give them a home. In um, in 1902, in the city of Atlanta, where Barbara and I were born and raised, uh, a young Jewish engineer born in in New York City came to Atlanta to accept a job as the superintendent of a large factory that produced pencils. He went to work for the National Pencil Producers. And um, a young 14-year-old girl who had been an employee in this factory was found murdered in the basement of the factory. And most of the employees of this factory resented working for a Jew. So they spread the rumor that he was the last person to have seen her and that he was romantically involved with her. So he's indicted, convicted of murder, and sentenced to life in prison. Two years later, the governor of Georgia commuted his sentence. He was set free, and six months after he was released from prison, the Ku Klux Klan went to his home, beat him up, kidnapped him, drug him to the front yard of the home of the little girl who had been murdered and hung him on a tree. Um, 
many people think of the Ku Klux Klan as, as a racist organization whose ire was directed almost exclusively toward blacks. Um, that's not the case. They were as, they were as vehemently anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish as they were anti-Negro. And this is just one of many atrocities that the Ku Klux Klan committed against Jews in the South. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan has been getting away with, literally getting away with murder for a long time. But I, um, I mean, this, <clears throat> this is the state of the world leading up to 1939. The day after Kristallnacht, Kristallnacht, um, about 30,000 Jews were rounded up and sent to concentration camps. And about six months after that, Hitler launched what history now refers to as the final solution. And again, I want to repeat this for emphasis, not because I'm trying to protect Hitler from his horrible reputation, but the world views Hitler as the single guy who concentrated on ridding the world of the Jewish problem. And he's not. Hitler really thought he was doing the world a favor by getting rid of Jews. And so, you know, when we, when we put these things all in historical context, then the statehood of Israel in 1942 means a lot more to us rather than um, just a resilient uh, gang of, what did I say, 48, I'm sorry, than just a resilient um, gang of soldiers from all over the world who, who had it in their heart to drive Palestinians out of Palestine. But if you were a Jew and, and your heritage was deep in European history, And more recently, you know, there were Holocaust survivors or victims in your family. And someone asked you the question, have you prevailed in your struggle with man and with God? What would your answer be? I mean, just imagine being a Jew, ask that question. What would your answer be? Have you prevailed in your struggle with God? You know, there's... Uh, in, in the stories that have been passed down for centuries in my family, I would have to say that the answer is no. I'm not talking about my family, but if I were a Jew. My family has not prevailed in its struggle against man, nor has it prevailed in its struggle with God. Israel is, for the most part, a secular nation. Because they have, they have begun to buy into the thought that God has forsaken them. 
And so it is easier. There is freedom for them in believing that they are not God's chosen people. And all they want to do is have a place where they can live peacefully. And having rejected God, there is no hope in their heart that the Prince of Peace will come into the world to create peace in Palestine so that they can live in peace. You know, the peace movement in, in, in the state of Israel has been one of the most profound political movements in the history of Israel. Almost every piece of legislation that, that, that addresses national defense also addresses peace. All they want to do is live in peace. Um, but yet they are viewed as the most militaristic country in the world. And if Canada and Mexico were enemies of the United States and they, they denied that Americans had the right to exist, that they denied our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, and they thought that we were a scourge on the world, we would be as militaristic as Jews are in Palestine or in Israel. a good point. Well, I know that this is very depressing. <laughs> and, and, I, and I knew that I would be running the risk of either boring you to tears or putting you in the funk. But I, I, think it's, I think it's a part of our history as an American people to understand the history of the Jewish people. Um, and, and I hope... Um, perhaps against hope, that you might be inspired to do some of your own research because it's, it's compelling history. It really is. And it's so, uh, so well hidden in the way the Western world approaches revealing history to its children. So on a brighter note, next week, which will be our last week, uh, I'm going to start off by playing a portion of Rifle's Palm Sunday sermon, which I think is, is most appropriate. 
um, in our view of hope for Israel. And um, I lured him into coming tonight, telling him that I was going to play it tonight. <laughs> but the events of last night um, and the Holy Spirit led me to do otherwise. So for that, I ask your forgiveness. And I hope you'll come back next. Because I'm sure there'll be questions that I can't answer. Be good for you to be here. And then we're going to go right into the promises that God has made to Israel. And we're going to read them right out of Scripture, not out of man's history. Um, and we'll end on that high note. Then I'm going to ask you to go back and look at the statement that you wrote the first night that we were here when I said, what, do you, what is your view of God's will for history? And see if that has changed any. Probably hasn't, but it's a good exercise anyway. Okay, Rifle, since you're here, <laughs> and we love to hear you pray, would you close us in prayer tonight? <laughs>